Welcome to the Imago Day podcast, the show of philosophical and theological reflections for today's world. My name is Lewis, and I am joined by Professor Joseph Terry. Joe, how are you today? Doing very well, trying to remain cool in 95 degree weather in New York City, but feeling great other than that. Today, we are discussing Catholicism. We're going to take a look at some of the personal reflections that you have on Catholicism, Joe, as yeah. well as kind of a very big picture view of the Catholic Church um, and the many, many different ways that it intersects with other elements of society. So, Joe, um, I want to begin our conversation by taking us back many years ago to 2019. <laughs> you sent a, an email out to family and friends. It was entitled, My Return to Catholicism. Um, and basically, you were sharing with family and friends just your perspective on the Catholic Church, as well as announcing um, you joining and becoming a member of the Catholic Church I know that like one's relationship with Christ is very, very hard to sum up in, in mm -hmm. such a short amount of time. But yeah. if you can just kind of give an overview of your uh, relationship with Christ and, and bring us to what made you join the Catholic Church. Absolutely, Lewis. Absolutely. Um, well, as you mentioned, um, and as you noted in the title of, I think, that letter that I sent out was um, the, my return right which of course uh, mm -hmm. assumes that i was somehow a part of it before and in fact in light of uh church teaching um i never uh left it, it, to the degree in which i was baptized in the catholic church as an infant though i never completed any of my other sacraments so you know of course then the question is well to what degree does one remain um is it sufficient to just receive baptism in the catholic church and therefore you are a cat card carrying catholic for the rest of your life and all of that there we'll table that for a moment but yes it is it is a return for me it was a return and you know when you ask the question of my relationship with christ i i smiled a bit because um while there is much I can say about that, and I would like to share a bit of it on, on our episode today. I smiled because it, it was a question within the context of Catholicism or within the context of ecclesiology in general. That is the context of the church. And the reason why I smirked and smiled is because there's something intuitively correct about the posing of such a question within that context. That is simply to say the following. While here, especially for us in America, um, evangelicalism would have us think that we can speak and think through the context of our personal relationship with Christ, divorced from the church community, from divorced from tradition, divorced from all the other riches that come to us through down the ages, uh, that is in fact an impossibility, right? If we think about it, a personal relationship with Christ and whatever that may mean needs to be thought through the mediating presence of the sacraments of tradition of the church as we actually already do so by means of scripture right when we mm -hmm. so for instance if one said oh yeah let me let me share with you my personal 
relationship with Christ. And then they begin to speak about that in some ways disconnected from the text of Scripture, right? We would find that account deeply suspicious, right? And 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 what I'm saying here is, is that actually that suspicion ought to go all the way down. Um, that is to say, not just our relationship with the Bible it, as a mediating text, right, or as a mediating tool, if we can speak of it as such, that mediates to us Christ, but even the church at large, and the saints and the angels and, and all of that there, which God has instituted and through his ineffable love, communicates to us his being and reality. So what can I then say about uh, my, you know, my personal relationship with Christ? I'll say the following historically. Again, uh, while I was indeed baptized a Catholic, I was never really catechized. And in fact, I never went to church uh, for the longest, maybe a handful of times, uh, maybe one Easter, and then a few years later, one Christmas. It was okay, like yeah. that, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, but I had some sense of piety. I would pray. There was uh, a little cross near my bed as I was a child. I remember that. I remember actually cultivating a devotion to Saint Jude, the patron saint of lost causes and hopes um wow. okay yeah guided by my mom you know and she said oh you know if you really want something or if you're struggling with something joey my family calls me joey uh let's let's pray to saint jude and i you know i was like six and seven i was like i bet let's do it you know and <laughs> <laughs> uh and and so that's that's in my memory um and I would pray before going to sleep. So there was some piety. Of course, uh, my teenage years, uh, much of that fell to the wayside. It was a real flirtation with a kind of atheism, a sort of scientific materialism. Uh, at my best days, I was maybe agnostic. My worst, I would even perhaps denounce the existence of God. And so mm. there was that phase through many of my teenage years as I was exploring astronomy and my love for science. And I saw them as I saw that as antithetical to the spiritual life and especially to the Christian life. But nevertheless, in the midst of all of that, my dad, my late father, may, may his soul rest, um, who, by the way, was not baptized Catholic. All right? He was baptized a Lutheran, but had a kind of uh, evangelical sense of the faith, that sort of general Protestant sense of the faith, he would tell me, he was like, Joey, remember that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And then we would have mm. conversations about that, even in my teenage years. And out of respect, I would engage the conversation, not from a place or disposition of animosity or defensiveness, but just a real inquiry mm. uh, and curiosity. And, and I would, of course, bring up science and things like that. And, and, and fascinatingly enough, even though my dad was not a learned man uh, in terms of letters, he was, he was extremely intelligent and very much... Um, it just he just had a kind of native intellect that allowed him to survey a large degree of of subjects and so i was able to have conversations uh, about science and even physics uh in relation to religion uh with him and so that that was helpful uh so no personal no decisive commitment to christ uh mm. uh my teenage years in many ways not at all as a youth, uh, my adolescent years, um, 
in in one sense, yes, there was a again a piety, a cultivation of that, but there wasn't any really any real robust catechesis formation teaching around that. And then it was in the I won't go too into details unless you ask Lewis, but <laughs> uh, you know, in, in at the University of Rochester as an undergraduate, uh, the sort of spiritual journey picked back up again as I was doing a double major in both philosophy and astrophysics. Um, and, and that eventuated into me having what many of us would typically call a born again experience or mm -hmm. becoming born again, um, as, as it's typically understood within a certain form of holiness movement within evangelicalism. And it was then, uh, I would say around when I was 21, 22, I, I did five years at the University of Rochester, super senior year, where, where there was a clear uh, decision to follow Jesus. You know, there was this, you know, the, the sinner's prayer, as it were. And, and even though I actually don't ever remember saying the sinner's prayer uh, around that time, I just remember a shift, particularly in the summer of 2003, uh, where... One day I was like, okay. And then the next day I was like, wow, I'm in love with Jesus. I really want to follow Christ. And it was after about a year and a half of research and exploration and also considering other religions and flirted with Buddhism and Eastern mysticism and certain forms of occultism as well. And that's a whole other thing there. So, yeah. Um, so did you consider yourself yeah. an evangelical at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. My... Quick answer is no, um, because I would simply have said, I'm a Christian. I, I don't okay. label myself. Mm. I'm not, you know, a part of a, any denomination. And um, so I, I would, in one sense, eschew that. I would kind of push it to the side and say, no, 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 I'm just a follower of Jesus. Um, but yes, you know, uh, definitely within evangelicalism, the particular uh, denomination um, through... <laughs> Through a radio channel, through the uh, it was um, what was it? Oh my goodness, Calvary Calvary Chapel Ministries, uh, and the Finger Lakes, upstate New York. It was through their radio station. So it, it was it was through the sermons that I would hear, um, again along with my own studies that that brought that shift about. And then when I um, went to find a church to engage in fellowship and worship. It was a Calvary Chapel's church, Calvary Chapel ministry. Okay. A form of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. um, so then at what point, uh, so you were attending Protestant churches, and then mm -hmm. at what point in around 2019 did you make the, the shift to the yeah. Catholic church? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like... Uh, I would say many that I've encountered when when that sh before the two, two 2019 occurred, of course, uh, around, actually going back to 2004, 2003 and 2004, with my segueing into a, a more properly uh, evangelical context, there came with it the baggage of Catholicism. And I took in, I ingested much of the anti-Catholic rhetoric that comes from the pulpit and from some of the literature that I was engaging at the time. That coupled with my own experience of Catholicism, which in one sense was very myopic and just, you know, I just was not catechized in any way. And then plus from those who I knew attended 
uh, faithfully Mass and went to Catholic Church. In fact, in one sense, in my family and many of those around me, Catholicism was ubiquitous. It was universal. Everyone was Catholic. It was just like part of the culture, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially on my mom's side of the family, Boricuas, you know. <laughs> and 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 that troubled me because, again, now here I am on fire for the faith and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm committed to Christ and I'm reading the Bible and the Bible is alive. It's a living text mm-hmm. and all of these things here and there and, and whatnot. Um, I, I looked at Catholicism and, and the church and, and, and all those there as something false, something pseudo. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a baggage that began to be, you know, increase in weight mm-hmm. and density over the years until I went to seminary. Uh, 2007, 2008, I enrolled uh, pursuing a degree in Masters in Divinity. And that was a, that was a fight itself. I, I was like, why am I going to seminary? I'm not going to be a pastor or preacher mm-hmm. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I just felt cold. I went into it. And in my studies in seminary, of course, my eyes began to open up, especially to the history of the church. Now, the history of Christianity given within the Protestant seminary was very, it, it, it just, it, it was like uh, 2,000 years in a semester and many things were sort of skipped over. <laughs> hmm. And then like a, all of a sudden a magical landing at the Reformation, as if the church <laughs> began at the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and whatnot, right? And mm. mm-hmm. uh, there was, of course, an acknowledgement of the ancient church and it was, you know, ooh. Uh, but, but, you know, did we ever actually read the fathers, Polycarp, St. Irenaeus, you know, the disciples of the disciples? No, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine um, that I met at work uh, over at Kingsborough, where I was uh, beginning to to teach, um, he had an interesting story. Uh, he was raised in a Pentecostal church and made a shift, a conversion into Catholicism. And I found that so puzzling and, and in one sense troubling. And I actually engaged in conversation with him. I was like, brother, what do you do? Like, what do you do? You leave the living church for the dead Roman papish <laughs> <laughs> like what the <laughs> heck is going on? And and very intelligent uh, chap, very very uh, cool guy. We engaged in conversation. It was really through him that I was introduced to the fathers. When I use that language, fathers, I mean the ancient church. I mean the church that was established by the apostles initially by Christ. And a simple question is well. Okay, we have the New Testament documents, and we see how the book of Acts ends, and, and some of the letters by Paul and others, and we see that the apostles are establishing bishops uh, in different cities and whatnot. And we ask the question then, um, what happened? Like, uh, what, what did the church look like after that, or even in that context? And it was through my friend, uh, he really raised that question and forcefully put, put it before me, which encouraged me then to pick up the fathers to begin to read the disciples of the disciples. Like who were the individuals that let's say John, the apostle, (laughs) the one that Mm. laid on the bosom of Christ's chest, right? His, his chest of the Lord's supper, the one who was there at the foot of the cross. And so like, who did John establish as bishops, like in Ephesus and Asia minor and other places like that. And, And when you read the writings of the apostolic fathers, right, the early church, you realize, one of the things you come away with is, oh my goodness, how Catholic 
sounding they are. The smells, the bells, the this sort of language about the Lord's supper, supper as a sacrifice, um, the that 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 the very elements of the Lord's supper of communion are the the very real visceral body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. There's no metaphorical language. Um, the clear ecclesiology that's that's top heavy. Right, wherever the bishops are, there is Christ, and you, you're not to do anything outside of the bishops' ordering of things, and the deacons, and the priests, the presbyters, and it's just like mad Catholic. And it's like mm. when I used to think of the early church, I used to think of like house churches, and and you know, mm-hmm. within the kind of evangelical context, it's like yo, we chill, you know, we break the bread and the cup, and you know, we fellowship. Somebody busts out a little guitar, and we do a little worship. <laughs> Somebody opens up the word. Mm. And then it's like a beautiful, sweet fellowship. And then that, that, there, there's something, without a doubt, beautiful and indeed true to that. But there were a lot of other accoutrements that I was just not aware of. Other things that actually were decisively formative for the early church that is in many ways super Catholic or Orthodox, depending on where you're coming mm. from. So that, man, let me tell you, bro. That messed me up, right? Because here I am in, in seminary, 2007, 2008, 2009, and I'm, I'm taking all uh, what I was learning, my formation there, but I was up late at night having uh, a mistress. Her name was the Ancient Church that I would frequent at night under the covers of my sheets. <laughs> <laughs> books of St. Aridaeus, and, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, how, how do I square what I am learning now with the ancient tradition of the church? So all of that said, and I know I'm taking up a lot of time here, Lewis. Um, let me, I'll just, I'll no, just, it's I'll, actually, yeah. let, let's pause right sure. there with you reading some of the, the early fathers mm. under the covers <laughs> late at night during <laughs> seminary. The way that you describe the Catholic Church and the way that, like, there seems to be an emphasis on tradition and the importance of this lineage. And what I'm thinking while I'm hearing you share this is, like, why? Like, why is that so important? So my question is, yeah, why why is tradition and church lineage so important to Christianity and what and what about the writings of the early church fathers like kept drawing you to investigate further yeah what an what an amazing question jesus himself i would say for me personally uh is the answer to that question mm-hmm. when jesus says with regards to the apostles and his disciples whoever receives you receives me whoever hears you hears me and in turn, hears the Father. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So you also are sent. When Jesus breathes in the post-resurrection account, he breathes on the 12, or the 11, I should say, right? The apostles. Mm -hmm. And he says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Whatever sins you bind on earth, they're actually bound in heaven. Whatever sins you forgive on earth, they're forgiven in heaven. When Jesus says to St. Peter, 
And it's interesting that we're having this conversation, uh, for those of us, uh, for, for the listeners, uh, we, we're recording this right now on the solemnity on the feast day of St. Peter and Paul, Saints Peter and Paul. So this, this, it's the, mm. the, the providence is, is quite interesting. Um, you know, when Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm building, I'm going to be building my church on you and the gates of hell will not prevail against this. And I'm giving to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven, right? Which is rabbinic language of authority. That that whole binding and loosening and, and the keys um, actually finds its its genesis in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the prophets Isaiah and whatnot. If you read, you can find that exact same language regarding the Davidic kingdom and the seat of authority. And when a king would leave, he would uh, have his viceroy who would have the keys, literally were a big set of keys for the entrance into the kingdom, right? He had the seat of authority and whatever he bound was bound throughout the kingdom, whatever he was, whatever he loosed, he would loose. So all of this stuff <laughs> of what Jesus says with the apostles and what we see in turn is kind of like uh, this, this descending of, of the teaching is what galvanized me to take tradition seriously. Also the question of the Bible, right? I'm, 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 I'm quoting here, uh, of course, from scripture, but who says what scripture is? Uh, the Bible did not mm. fall <laughs> from mm. the sky, you know? Christians do not have a theology of the word similar to uh, Muslims, who, for instance, the Quran is literally verbatim, word for word, uh, understood to be the uh, words of Allah through the prophet Muhammad, right? Mm -hmm. uh, received verbatim from the, from the angel Gabriel, um, word for word. Actually, the word Quran means recite. Um, and Christians... Und the, the Christian understanding of inspiration, similar to the Jews, is far more nuanced and complicated. It's not that um, St. Paul and Peter and, and John, when they were writing the Bible, what we <laughs> receive as the Bible, mm -hmm. that they were receiving dictation, you know, from, from the Holy Spirit, like whispering into the ear of the angels. It's far more complicated and nuanced. And why quote the Bible? Who said that Matthew should be a gospel that, that is considered scripture? Like, why, why the letters of Paul? And when they're writing, they, they doesn't seem in one sense any indication that they recognize themselves as writing scripture, right? In some senses, yeah, but in other senses, no. Like, how do we have this? Oh, the Bible itself is a product of the ancient tradition. The Bible, the, the books of, of the New Testament canon are, are put together through councils, recognition, through the bishops in what is called apostolic succession in lineage, in other words, descendant from the apostles. So this idea of, let me go ahead and start my own church down the block. Let me start my own ministry. None of that was the case. And of course, there were many different ministries and services and people who would say, oh, we're the true church. But fascinatingly enough, you looked at the early church and you see the rise of heretical thoughts and, and all this stuff mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. false churches, quote unquote, the true church would always say, yeah, but tell me your role book. Where do you guys descend? See, our bishops have our hands laid on by the bishops that preceded us, that preceded them, all the way going back to the apostles. That's mm -hmm. the idea of apostolic succession, right? And, and the transference of the spirit and the, all of that there. So there's, there's a lot being said. So even the question of the Bible, 
So when we ask, I, I would say, these questions, where did the Bible come from? Where did the faith come from? Why do we believe that God is Trinity? <laughs> why, why do we confess the creed? What does this even mean, these councils that we reference? Um, we realize the question of tradition and the ancient church is inescapable. And so therefore, if I try to live out Christianity that is somehow decapitated from, from the head, right? From, from the font, right? From the font of tradition, it is indeed then a decapitated Christianity. It is headless. It is, and, and in, in that sense, there is something deeply lost in that. Now, of course, there are other questions that would need to be responded to that, but that's just some initial remarks. <laughs> I, I think, I think uh, the latte has me... <laughs> Fired up. Fired sure. up right now, guys. <laughs> so many, I have so many questions about the Catholic sure, Church. Sure, man. Please, please. But, um, okay, so I'm just, like, reflecting what I just heard you say. Yeah. Uh, I'm hearing you say that, like, tradition is important because it it also kind of carries authority like the connections mm. there's there's like less degrees removed from christ when you're kind of tracing the lineage of the early church fathers yeah and that kind of creates a level of authority yeah um what is like overwhelming me right now <laughs> is just this idea that like the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church today, is this huge. Like, I, I don't know. Would you call it an organization, or like, or yeah, would you just call it, it a church? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an organization, the oldest living, uh, continuous organization in the world, historically speaking. Its membership is listed as mm -hmm. at one point three billion um, from as of twenty nineteen. Yes, that's a lot of people. That's a lot it of <laughs> like it's the largest. In fact, you can you can take all the Protestant denominations, and it still wouldn't uh, make up the numbers uh, of the Catholic Church. The same with the Orthodox Church. But wow. yeah, I think what what's important here, Lewis, is not so much the size of the institution, and whatnot. I think mm -hmm. th there's a witnessing element to that, without a doubt. But I think what's important is considering the question of what is the church, especially in light of history, right? So you and I, here we are, 2021, we're both in, you know, living in cities, um, mm -hmm. the urban context. We walk down the block, we see Joe Blow's church, and then across the street, especially in New York City, right? Especially in Brooklyn, in Queens. Brooklyn, yeah. so many, especially in, you know, where I'm born and raised, Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah, like one block <laughs> radius, bro, one block. There's like six <laughs> different churches, like no joke, as you know, mm -hmm. six different churches. Yep. Whose man's is this? Like, what <laughs> are you doing? Pick. Yeah, take yeah. your pick, right? The Presbyterian church on the block, the this, the that, the that, the that. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for us to think of church within a consolidating framework within this sort of um this is the church you know and, and, and especially within our kind of postmodern context there's something like almost like off-putting with that it's like very exclusive like no we're the true church da, da, da. but but i think what's helpful here and this is what i'm getting to is to think of it historically remember for the first thousand years <laughs> well first thousand years there was the only it was one holy 
Catholic and Apostolic Church. Of course, I'm quoting here from the Creed, right? Mm -hmm. The Nicene Creed. One Mm -hmm. holy Catholic. There was no, I'm going to walk down the block in my little village and there's different churches. Mm -hmm. There was one church. Then you had, of course, in 1054 AD, I'm not a scholar here, there are debates about what exactly took place, but the great schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, right? Today, what we have Orthodox Church or Orthodoxies, there are many different styles of Orthodox Church, and then the Latin Church, right? Typically the Roman Church. Mm -hmm. But the word Catholic itself means universal, right? It means universal. So... Um, and then, of course, another 500 years later, within the Latin West, you have the Reformation or the Revolt, depending on how you re- read it, and, and the splitting up, right? There are bishops that warned Martin Luther, Luther, this is not going to end with you. If you break and this movement grows, there will be splinter movements that come forth from you. Luther, in one sense, recognized that he saw it as a necessary, you know, like a necessary evil anyway. And so he like mm. pulled the trigger. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened, even in his own lifetime. What he called the radical reformers. He saw them as demonic folks like Zwingli. Why? Because they saw the Lord's Supper as purely symbolic. Luther, Martin Luther mm. was like, that's demonic. That's not, the church has never just, never in her history saw the Lord's Supper as merely symbolic. Mm. What is that, right? Or other theological debating points. But it's fascinating. Luther himself would have recourse to the tradition, but of course he just had a hermeneutic of profound suspicion and then was choosing and picking what tradition he wanted to keep for his own splinter group and what he wanted. This is the problem. Mm. So, and then you have these splits and splits, and now you have within Protestantism, over 30,000 denominations. And that's not an exaggeration. And it grows by the day because if, hey, Joe Terry wants to start a church and I have some charismatic gifts and I'm a pretty okay teacher and I am able to, you know, get a group around me and, you know, start a mm-hmm. church down the block in mm-hmm. Kew Gardens, Briarwood. Mm-hmm. Here we go, you know? Um, and, and there you have it, a new denomination <laughs> based on now my theology and what's going to be in my values and, and how I'm going to conceive of Christianity. You see what I mean? So, yeah. Is that just like a, a historical problem here on earth for Christianity? Like just the fact that Christ is not with us, like it just seems like throughout history, Within the Catholic Church, within all the different denominations that kind of splintered off, there are differences when it mm-hmm. comes to just the the practice of Christianity. Um, like, it, it just seems like it, it's going to always continue. Like, that conversation will keep on happening within sure. the church. The differences in practice and in let's say, ministerial philosophy, and perhaps even the question of belief, differences in belief, mm-hmm. needs to be, um, I think, thought of in relation to legitimacy. There are legitimate differences, and then there are illegitimate differences. Now, the only way we can even speak of legitimacy is if, if there are clear boundary conditions at work, if there is a clear seat of authority, See, so it really fundamentally comes down to the question of authority. Which church has the authority? 
Which church, in other words, is the church that Jesus founded? Mm-hmm. Which church can trace her lineage unbroken all the way back to the apostles and to Christ himself? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think in light of authority, everything else becomes clear. Of course, within the context of history. Mm-hmm. So... When Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock on which I'm building the church and the gates of uh, hell will not prevail. The keys of the kingdom I'm giving to you uh, and to the band of apostles and so on and so on. Um, was Jesus just being metaphorical and symbolic and, or, or is Jesus really establishing a church that will be the true church? that within the boundaries of that church is salvation and life, despite her apparent brokenness and scandals and mishaps. Even Peter himself, Paul, will have to rebuke in one point in his ministry, as we see in, what is it, Galatians. And Paul recounts his story of how Paul, St. Paul had to rebuke St. Peter because he was backsliding in a, in a certain way, right? He was mm-hmm. tiptoeing around the issue of eating with goyim, Gentiles, and, and mm-hmm. eating with them and non-kosher and, and whatnot. So despite the waywardness or the, the prone to, to brokenness, is, they, is there nevertheless a legitimate seat of authority? So one of the examples I like to use is any institution, in fact, any institution, um, let's say I'm NYPD. I work for the New York Police Department. I see a lot of corruption. I see a lot of shit going on in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see a lot of abuse of power. Nevertheless, NYPD is the legitimate jurisdiction, right? The legitimate seat of authority with regards to civic affairs uh, of policing, which means that I cannot leave and start my own police department <laughs> in New York City. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to start my own militia. In fact, I will become uh, that group, right? A group ancillary, right? And divorced from the legitimate seat of authority. Um, what I can do is reform and do my darnest and probably die in doing so, trying to reform this structure, this system, the NYPD. But from within, I can't break off from her and I'm going to start my own police department and I'm very popular. So I'm going to get a lot of people. I'm going to get a third, of the police department to follow me. And I had a pretty high ranking. I, you know, I was a chief and I just broke off and I'm going to start my own thing. No, the government would not recognize that as legitimate. You see, even though it would be understandable because of the level of corruption and people are frustrated. Yes. All of that. Right. Whether we're talking about the DOE, the department of education, whether we're talking about the United States of America, any government, any structure, even our family dynamics, Guess what? We can't just leave our family and be like, I'm going to start my own thing, right? Of course we mm-hmm. can, but we're forever tied. We're always bound to the historical reality of our genesis and the legitimacy of our own authority. So the, really all the questions, and, and watch this, Lewis, all the other questions fundamentally fall on this point. The question of, okay, what about this this sort of praying to the saints? Like, what the hell is that about? Like, what mm-hmm. about this, the Catholic Bible has more books than the mm-hmm. Protestant 66 books in the Bible. What about this and that and that and this and that and the Pope and what? That doesn't make any sense. And none of that in one sense will, in the final analysis, 
um, be justified unless there's a legitimate seat of authority and jurisdiction in relation to that. Um, and so really, really, all of this comes down to the question of, did Jesus establish a church which is still in continuity to existence today? And, and what I've discovered, Lewis, um, and I want to be sensitive to this, right? Because this sounds very mm-hmm. triumphalistic and, 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 again, it could be a lot of it off-putting and this raises other questions with regards to apologetics. But what I discovered, Lewis, was this, you know, I, I pick up the Bible <laughs> as a Protestant minister, as a pastor, as a teacher uh, within the evangelical context. And, and I take for granted this book that I'm preaching from. But it already presupposes a tradition. It presupposes a church that closed the canon. I mm. quote from the Apostles' Creed <laughs> or the Nicene Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. I'm quoting this as if it's like a given, right? But I'm quoting and referencing of the very fruit of the ancient church. I say, oh, you know, the Council of Chalcedon, right? Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, where Christ's uh, uh, divine personage, right? his hypostasis is the unitive principle between his full humanity and his full divinity, right? Jesus is the hypostatic union between God and man, right? So we say as Protestants, right? Like, no, 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 no. If you believe that Jesus is not fully God, that's heretical. Or if you don't believe that Jesus is not fully human, that's heretical, right? But what are we referencing? What, who gave us the rule book? Oh, the church, the ancient church. You see, mm-hmm. so so for me, there were a lot of con- inconsistencies for over 10 years. I sat with this, bro. My going back to my own narrative over 10 mm-hmm. years, I recognized this and I sat with it. How can I affirm this? But the very thing that I'm affirming comes from a church that also prayed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. How can I affirm this about this truth of our faith while it while it comes from a church that venerated the dead bone of saints and relics and kissed them and recognized that Christ's mediating grace and power was through the corpses of dead saints. This is like weird, right? This is, how can I, how can I affirm these truths if they come from a church that also had a clear priesthood that saw themselves as having the capability of confecting the Eucharist offering the sacrifice of the mass. So I recognized really that I was in a sense like, okay, I'm half stepping over here. I, I'm, I'm, there's, there's a dynamic hip, hypocrisy in one sense um, uh, in, in my practice. And so in 2019, the summer of 2019, I just did a lot of soul searching. I, it was one of the summers I didn't teach. Um, I, so I did not, teach any summer module courses. I had a lot of free time and I just prayed and I discerned and I found myself as an ecclesially homeless individual. I, I, you know, here I was a minister of the gospel within a Protestant context. And 
yeah, the spirit of God operative there, God in his grace, sustaining and, and meeting. But yet it was precisely through that same grace that was calling me ever higher. I, 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 I there were certain questions with regards to the, the truth of the faith that were inescapable. And so I, I bit the bullet. I, I said, you know, I, I can no longer, I can no longer do this. I just can't, not knowing what I know. And that was a very, that was hard, man. Because again, for me, one of the profound issues that I wrestled with was so much of the church, the Catholic church, seemed dead and, and just not living the life, not taking discipleship seriously. How can, how can I swim the Tiber, as the saying goes? And, and, and come to Rome, come home to Rome. <laughs> um, seeing that this is, in my estimation, the truth, the fullness of the faith, the fullness of the truth, while, while there seems to be this inertia, this, this, this death uh, in the way Christians seem to have lived their life, practiced their faith in Catholicism. You know, I speak as a New Yorker, Mm -hmm. uh, the Latin rite of the church here, just is a lot of issues, you know? And so something I had to wrestle with, but in the end, obviously I, I swam the Tiber and I said, Hey, I'm going to swim it. I'll be a rascal. I'll, I'll probably be a rascal in Rome. I'll probably, uh, seek to reform things from within, but it'll be from within, um, in unity with, with what I saw and what I do see is the fullness of the Christian mystery the fullness of the faith. Um, Yeah. That's great. I wanted to um, conclude this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to quote a part of your letter and ask you a question about the sacraments. Um, mm -hmm. You wrote, quote, the other decisive reason for my return is existential in nature. I've come to realize that the sacraments, particularly the body and blood, is something I absolutely need for my walk with Christ. The sacramental nature of the church, along with the ministry of the word, the preached word, is not ancillary to our discipleship, but at its very heart, as the church herself has understood since its beginning. My question for you, Joe, is um, what's, why are the sacraments so important to you and why you think they're so important to the church? And um, yeah, like what did you mean by that? Yeah, the sacraments are the visible means of, of, of God's love and grace to us. God uses in his, uh, in his wisdom very tangible and common things to communicate his invisible, invisible attributes to us, his invisible qualities, if you will, to, to draw us into the very life of the Trinity. Bread and wine and oil and water and other things uh, pertaining to the sacramentals. Um, and as St. Thomas Aquinas will note, one of the reasons why God does this is because you and I are flesh and blood creatures. We are composite beings. We are not disembodied spirits. We operate sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, right? We're empirically rooted. And so God comes to us just like a good father would come to a child and communicate the depths of wisdom that the father would have, but in such a way that a child can understand. And so in one sense, the sacraments are indeed those cords of love that God draws us ever deeper into his very Trinitarian life. 
due to a number of reasons that occurred during the Reformation, um, the sacraments became ever more kind of put to the side. We start to see this even with Zwingli and others, um, even though in one sense this wasn't Luther's intention, but you even see a bit of this here in Luther, uh, you know, his reading of the Mass as no longer a sacrifice and whatnot, even though Luther would believe that Christ is indeed somehow viscerally present uh, therein. So why the sacraments? Why important? Well, <laughs> it's the way in which, which we come into the faith, through the waters of baptism. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to see that as Protestant evangelicals because we have imbibed a, a theology that says, well, here's the sinner's prayer, pray this and really sincerely mean it in your heart, and you're now a Christian, right? Come to the altar, which, mm -hmm. is, which is ironic because there is no altar, but their altar calls. But in the Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there are altars um, where there is indeed a sacrifice taking place. And what does that even mean, a sacrifice taking place? The book of Hebrews says Jesus died once and for all. Is the Catholic Church and, and those liturgical churches in concert with her, other divine liturgies, are, are you saying that you are re-sacrificing Christ? What does it even mean to speak of the sacrifice of the Mass? No. The theology is essentially this. It is a representation of that once and for all sacrifice. So it is a true, unbloodied sacrifice. It is the representation to the eternal Father, that one singular sacrifice of Christ. And the reason why that's able to happen in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, through the priest and the bishops, is because God is infinite and omnipresent and, and everywhere present, and, and he's not limited to time and space. And because he loves us, he wants to present Calvary to each and every one of us. Yes, indeed, under the visible signs of bread and wine, but there is a substantial change, such that when the priest holds up the host and the cup, the church believes radically, and again, this goes all the way back to the earliest fathers, mm. that this is the literal body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, which is why the faithful fall on their knees, which is why there is adoration and worship, which is why there is a profound and deep reverence in receiving the body and blood, which is why, if, God forbid, you drop the host or there's some desecration, there's like a whole system that has to... Occur, right, this is not a symbol. This is not merely a symbol. This is Jesus. Mm. So, the, the church sees that as the sacrament of sacraments, and all the other sacraments are oriented and find their their locus in this singular sacrament. So, the confessional and commute and excuse me and and baptism and confirmation and and the holy orders and the last rites and all of these things are so important to me because it is what Christ himself has instituted when he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And when he did not lie, when he said, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age, when he was very clear in the Gospel of John chapter 6, when he says, you must eat my flesh, and drink my blood mm -hmm. to have eternal life. And, and people left, and many of his disciples left. They were like, are you, no way, what? That's crazy. And, and, yeah. and he doesn't soften the language. He actually, right, he, he elevates it. Mm. So there's, there's something here. Um, so for me, when I came around to really believing and accepting this, 
I said to myself, my goodness, I, 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 based on the words of Christ, I need, I need his body and blood. Mm. I, I don't need a symbol. Mm-hmm. I need him. I need him. And um, I need more of him. And I need the fullness of him. What I found in that, in one sense, you know, if we consider our worship services, our praise and adoration services within a Protestant context, and many of our lyrics, Lewis, isn't it interesting, right? We say, Lord, I want more of you. I want more, especially within the mm-hmm. charismatic, for those of us who have a charismatic background or the holiness tradition, right? There's a, a kind of longing, a yearning, a crying out, Lord, more, 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 right? And the answer is down the block. <laughs> in that weird, suspicious church with all the sexual scandals and all the craziness that's been happening, all the abuse and weird, the actual, the answer is there on the altar, the fullness of Christ, mm. the fullness of Christ. Um, so the cries uh, within the heart of, I'll speak in the eye, my Protestant heart were already presupposing the sacraments. They were already pointing to the condition of possibility that allowed for a resolution, the profound cries and tensions I experienced in my own heart. So this is why I say existentially, no, 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 I need that. This is, I've read my way into the church, right? If indeed, there was an intellectual formation process that, that allowed me to come in when I saw like one plus one is two and two plus two is four. You could, mm-hmm. There's only so long we can deny that. So there was a, indeed a reading myself into the church. But once I discovered that, I said, oh, no, I, I wow, th- I, I actually need this. Mm-hmm. And that was hard. Again, it was hard for the reason, some of the reasons that I've shared. shared but I, I, I said, no, no, I got to do it. And so that's what happened. Yeah, no, I, I think this is a great... Um pause that we'll put to the conversation i think he did a good job of just kind of uh being apologetic about the catholic church you know just just issuing a a a defense and the need for uh, arguing the need for the catholic church so i I appreciate the conversation joe and i look forward to talking with you some more about the catholic church because i have even more questions now (laughs) so thanks joe wonderful you're welcome (laughs) 